My name's Stephen. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, work a little bit at Sovereign Hope. Um, so we've been uh, actually first. I want to I want to just congratulate all of the gentlemen that have participated in No Shave November, <laughs> without giving in to their their spouses or or girlfriends. <laughs> Stay strong. I, I do have to confess this is I started this halfway through October, so it's really not November. I know I cheated a little bit, but I want I want I want to look like Darren at some point in my life. And if my wife will ever let me. Um, so we've been going through Ephesians, uh, looking at uh, looking at what Paul has has to say to the to the church at Ephesus, to the um, to the people there. We've been progressively working our way through it, and up to this point, Paul's put a real heavy emphasis on the church, on the, on the corporate church, and on the gospel within the church, and how the gospel impacts what the church is and what the church does, and how the church operates, and. Tonight, what we're going to be what we're going to be doing tonight marks a, a kind of a shift in the book. Um, think about what we've been talking about as the truck that that that, that drives um, the book of Ephesians, um, and what tonight is going to be our hitch, and what, what what comes after in the next couple weeks is going to be the trailer. Because what, like I've said, we looked what we've looked at is the gospel. Paul's laid out the gospel, and and, and what the church is. And what tonight we're going to be looking at is, is the transition between what the church is as a whole, kind of on a macro level, um, in, in, in a general sense, and in the following couple weeks, in the, in the following couple chapters, we're going to look at how individuals operate within the church with each other, and how individuals operate in light of the gospel, um, in character, and whatnot. Um, so tonight is kind of the transition point between those two, um, and, and, and uh, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to get going. So let's, let's pray once more. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we come before you humbly on our knees um, in worship. We, we, we pray that tonight we would, we would glorify you with our words, um, that, that, that your, your words would be spoken tonight. That that's, that's why we're here, to, to worship you and, and adore you, God. We pray that, um, that the gospel would be present, that, that we would be focused on the gospel and that the gospel can, can change how we look at life, how we look at ourselves, and, and who we are, God. Um, Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I want to talk for a second about sin. And, I mean, it wouldn't be a, a Sovereign Hope sermon if we didn't talk about sin a little bit um, during, the, dur- during the, the evening. So you don't have to look very far in our culture on campus, in your families, in life, to see the effects of sin. You don't have to look very far to see sin. You don't have to look very far to see the effects of sin. It doesn't take a genius to see that there's fracture in relationships, that there's fracture in in how people operate. You have different kinds of sin. You have have people uh, on one side with with a self-righteous attitude thinking that through their own actions, through their own righteousness and holiness, they, they, can, they can save themselves. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people that, that completely ignore and rebel against a God, if they believe in a God, and, and embrace licentiousness, embrace sin, embrace whatever they, they want, they do what they want to do with no regard for, for law or for what others would say. And you have everyone in the middle there that kind of mixes and matches with those two. It really doesn't take uh, a genius to see sin and the effects of sin in the world. But um, first and foremost, before sin infiltrates the family, infiltrates relationships between people on the horizontal level, 
Sin is always, first and foremost, a grievance against God. Our sin is always against God first. It always goes vertical before it goes horizontal. Psalm 54, or 52, 4 rather, um, 51, 4, excuse me, 51, 4, 51, 4 says, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified with your words and blameless in your judgment. So we see there, this is David telling God that against you have I sinned. His sin is first and foremost against the creator God. He is a creation rebelling against the creator God. And that is where sin first and foremost is a problem, is between man and God. It's a vertical problem. Sin is always first and foremost a vertical problem. We pick up our passage in Ephesians um, chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, walking in sin, living in sin, willfully living in sin, is to walk in darkness, as Paul says, to live in ignorance. And by darkness, I, I always get this thought of darkness from a video game I used to play. Um, I'm not going to say it because I'm not comfortable with revealing that level of nerdiness to you. But I always think of darkness as this like dark cloud of evil kind of crawling towards somebody. But when, when I thought about it in like light and dark, like in a room of darkness, of pitch black, it made a whole lot more sense to me. Think about sin as, as in, being in a, living in sin as being in a dark room, not being able to see, not having a light to see where you're going, not knowing where you are or what you're doing because you can't see anything. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Paul is telling us that, 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 that this sin we live in, this darkness that we live in, is, 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 is who we were. We're going to see a split here in the passage soon. But he's telling us that this is who we were. Now all of us are different. We've seen that in, in the passage up to this point, in, in Ephesians up to this point. We all have different abilities and talents and passions and desires. We all serve the church in different ways, as we've seen with the body, where all, some of us are arms, hands, feet, legs. All of us are different, right? All of us have different uh, um, talents and abilities. In the same way, all of us sin differently. All of us have different idols, and those idols manifest themselves differently in our lives. Um, me, for example, I, I mean, I grew up in the church, I grew up going to a Christian school, doing Christian things, speaking Christianese. I knew all the Christian stuff. And I didn't really care for the gospel. I didn't care about Christ. I didn't, I didn't pursue Jesus. I didn't love Jesus. But I, I, I knew all that stuff. But what I lived for was myself. What I wanted most of all, and I still struggle with this today, is I wanted acceptance and approval from other people. What would, what would bring me satisfaction before Christ was approval and acceptance from other people. And to get that, I would, I would lie, I would manipulate, I would um, exaggerate, I would do whatever I could to be accepted and, and to, to appear as, as successful, as a better person than I was. And so, all of us have sin in different ways. That, that's an example of where I was. All of us sin in different ways. And, and something unique about humanity, as opposed to the rest of creation, is that we all have this, this innate sense of direction, this innate 
um, sense of right and wrong, and we call it a conscience. We, God's given that to us. Um, we see that in Romans 1, 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. You see, God in his grace gave humanity an inner, what we call a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. He gave us the the ability to discern between right and wrong, between sin and not sin. Um, It's something that every image bearer, every every human being has that we're born with. What we do, though, is, is the more we rebel, the more we walk in sin, the more we decide that we know what is right over, the more we decide we know better than God what is right and wrong, um, the less and less it bothers our conscience. So the more and more we sin, the more and more we walk in that darkness and in that sin, the less it bothers us. Paul shows that to us in, in, in Ephesians 4, 19. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, like for myself, when, 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 when I needed approval and I would lie to get it or I would exaggerate to get it, every time I would do it, the guilt got less and less and less. The, 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 the sense of, of wrong inside of me got diminished the more and more I did it. So I'd exaggerate more and more. I'd lie more and more. I, I'd do more and more to get that acceptance and approval. I mean, and like I said, all of us are different. Some of us struggle with, with alcohol and, and, and drugs, and, and sometimes maybe getting wasted on Friday night isn't enough anymore, and you have to take it a step further into, into some other kind of, maybe drugs, maybe, maybe you have to take someone home with you. It, it, it manifests itself differently, but the point is, is the sin that you live in, the longer you live in it, the more callous you become to that sin, the less it bothers you the less amplified the guilt that you have over that sin exists inside of you. That's what it means to walk in darkness. It is, I was looking for that satisfaction from people when they can't give me the satisfaction that I long for. I was looking for approval from people that couldn't give me that approval. That's what, that's what it is to walk in darkness. You can't, you, you think what you're looking for is right in front of you, but when you reach out to grab it, you get nothing but air. And then you take a step further into the darkness, become more calloused, and, and you do it all, and it's just a cycle of darkness. And, and our sin becomes, like Paul says, we get greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We keep searching and searching and sin for that, that which will satisfy us. This here, this 17 through 19, is a bleak picture Paul paints here. It's bleak. It's dark. But he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just leave the, the, the church there. Yeah. Pick it up in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. That is not the way that you learned in Christ. That being everything he just talked about in 17 through 19, all of that licentiousness, the greediness, the evil, the callousness to sin, that's not what you learned in Christ. Now something I found interesting here when, I'm, when I was studying this is that, um, who he is talking to and who he's talking about. 
if we look back at, at verse 417, it says, Now this I say and testify to the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Um, so he's talking about the Gentiles, but we know that the church at Ephesus was predominantly Gentile. So basically he's saying to the Gentiles, the way that the Gentiles live is evil. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know about you, but I kind of, I don't, I don't have a, sh- I don't have a long fuse. I, I, I have some, some anger problems sometimes. Um, what my wife would call road rage, I call constructive criticism. <laughs> but if someone were to come into my house and, and tell me that I was a bad American or a bad husband, I wouldn't sit well with me. I really wouldn't sit well with me. And that's what it appears Paul's doing here. He, he, he's talking to, to, to a Gentile church about the evil of the Gentiles. And that's, that, that's what my initial thought was here. But then as we dive in more, we see that Paul, he's not, he, he's making a distinction here. He's making a distinction between who they were and who they are. Who they were in verses 17 through 19 and who they are starting in verse 20. We'll pick it up in 20 through 24 again. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So as we zoom out, we see Paul in, in the first part saying, this is who you were, this is what you lived in. And, and, and now in, in 20 through 24, this is who you are in Christ. That this darkness you once walked in, the sin that you lived in, the callousness that you once had has been peeled away by Christ. That is removed. That is the old self. You are the new self by Christ's power. I mean, what Paul does here is, is really just incredible. Um, what, he's, what he's saying is that he's speaking to the Gentiles about the Gentiles because they aren't, they aren't primarily Gentiles anymore. They aren't primarily Gentiles anymore. They are Christ's. They are Christians first. Let's look at Philippians 1.21. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is Paul speaking again to, to, to another church. For me to live is Christ. My life is Christ. Who I am is Christ. What I do is Christ. That's what he's saying here to the Gentiles is that how the Gentiles walk? That's who you were. That was where your identity was. They were Gentiles, and now you're Christ's. You are no longer Gentiles first. You are Christ's first. To live is Christ. And now for them, the, the, the whole was, was a stronger motivation than the individual. And as we've seen um, for, for us here in our culture in the past, since we've been in Ephesians, is that's not the case for us. For us, it's the individual. That, is, that, is, that, that drives our culture. I mean, ads and, and everything's tailored to the individual. Um, you have things like Hulu and Netflix where anyone, literally anyone can go on there and find something they want to watch because it's tailored to the individual. So when we're looking at this, instead of Paul saying, talk, talking about a group of people to us, he's saying, you, Stephen, are no longer Stephen first. You are mine first. You are Christ's. You are Christ's first. When we're given the gift of the gospel, who we are changes. Our identity changes. Who we are changes. 
<clears throat> and maybe, maybe, um, oh, excuse me, rather, before we were Christ's, what we do, what we, our motivations for why we do what we do is to seek satisfaction and joy for ourselves. At the core of, of everything we do is a search for satisfaction and joy. So, so think about it for, my, for myself. I wanted satisfaction in, in people's opinions. Some people, you may, you may push back against that and say, well, well I'm, I'm a good person and I, I, want, I want to be a good person because that's what I feel like I should do. But in all honesty, when you get all underneath that, do you want to appear as a good person? Do you want to be a good person because being good satisfies you? Or if you have kids, is your motivation, would you say your motivation for everything is your, children's and your children and their welfare and the, for the good of your kids? But in all honesty, if you get underneath that, what satisfies you then is the good of your kids. What you think, satis- what you think will satisfy you is the good of your kids. You see, all of these, all of these searches for, for, for satisfaction and joy, um, underneath it, it is a pursuit of, of, of satisfaction for yourself. Satisfaction for myself. It's a search for joy, it's a search for fulfillment for myself. But with the gospel at heart, with the gospel taking hold of your life like it did in this Gentile church, who you are changes and what you pursue changes. Who you are changes. You, don't long, you no longer serve yourself and, and search for satisfaction for yourself. You serve Christ Jesus. You serve the one who served you. Paul is saying, where we, you were once this, you are now this. Where you lived for the Gentiles, where you lived as Gentiles, now you live for, for Christ, you live as Christ's. So let's, let's zoom back in here. Zoom back in here. Now that we, we've undergone this, this transformation from, from one person to another, from myself to Christ's, um, our, our identities, our, our motivations change. Our search for satisfaction changes from, from ourself to, to Christ. What, what actually does that change, though? Now that, now that we see that, okay, Paul's saying, I'm not mine anymore, I'm Christ's. What, what does that mean? I, what, is, what does that actually change? What does that actually change? Now, to do that, we're going to have to go to the beginning of the Bible, beginning of everything, where God created the universe. He created literally everything in it. He created Adam and Eve, and, and, um, and he, he dwelt in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It was, it was, there was perfection in the garden. There was perfection with Adam. There was perfection with Eve. There was perfection in their communion with God. And then they screwed it up. You all know that kid on your, your basketball team or your volleyball team that wouldn't shut up and caused everyone to run suicides until you puked. That is Adam and Eve. They screwed it up for everybody. Okay? They, they, as Adam was humanity's representative before God, Adam was literally in the most perfect situation that anyone has ever, any human has ever been in. He was given the most perfect situation any human has ever been in. And he still failed. And as Adam failed, so we failed. As Adam failed, so we failed. Let's look at Romans 5, 18a. 5:18a. but the free gift, oh, no, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. One trespass, speaking of Adam's trespass. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 22a. For as in Adam all die. Adam was our representative before human, as 
humanity's representative before God, and because he failed, we failed. Failure for Adam was failure for all. And, and it's really not something that sits easy well with us. At least it didn't sit easy well with me for a while. Because who elected Adam as our representative, right? I mean, this, who, were, who elected this guy who literally in perfection failed? Like, I feel like we could have picked anyone else and they would have done a better job. Like, that's how, that's how, that's how I felt. But then it, it, think about it. And yeah, that sounds, that, that, that sounds like we might have an argument, but literally, has anyone else in the history of humanity outside of Jesus been perfect? And has that been their, their, their only downfall? Was Adam's failure? If there was a, a, a person who literally lived a perfect, sinless life, and their only fault was Adam's representation, there might be something there. I mean, he'd have to take it up with the creator, God, but there might be something, but that doesn't exist. There is no person that can say that. There's no person that can say he was perfect before God outside of Christ. Now, that being said, Christ was perfection. Christ was perfection. The old self we see depicted in verses 17 through 19 and in verse 20 is, is us as the descendants of Adam with the blood of Adam inside of us. The old self is who we are in Adam as, as, as sinners. Because we are descendants of Adam, because we have the blood of Adam inside of us, and we, excuse me, because we have the blood of Adam inside of us, we are sinners. Because Adam failed, we failed. Let's, let's finish those two verses um, in Romans 5, 18. The whole, the whole verse, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The second one, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, is, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So Adam, as our representative, failed, but Christ, as our representative, was perfect. Not only as, as, as our representative was he perfect, but as our representative, he took what we have in the representation of Adam in our sin and bared it as his own and died with that and carried that with him. As Adam was our representative in the garden before God, Jesus Christ was our representative before God on the cross. And, and something that I, I think we don't talk about or maybe even think about a whole lot is, I mean, at least in my experience, is, is the perfection of the life of Christ. I mean, we all know Jesus was perfect, but we don't talk about it a lot. We don't, we don't really discuss it a lot. I mean, I know myself, those verses I kind of I look over because, of course, Jesus was perfect. Everyone knows Jesus was perfect. The, the four-year-olds I teach know Jesus was perfect. I mean, it's not something we think about a lot, but when you look at, when you look at the fact that Christ died carrying the weight of our sin, yet he was perfect. He impart, when, excuse me, when he died carrying the weight of our sin, he granted us as Christians his perfection. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 4.5. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. In Romans 4.5. 
And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, when Christ died, not only did he pay the penalty that was due us, he granted us the perfection that was due him. When he died, he not only paid our death penalty, he not only paid the death penalty we deserved, but he gave us the perfection that he deserved, the perfection that he lived. He not only cleans our slate of the gunk and the filth and the dirt that is on it, but he gives us his slate that is spotless and clean. See, when Paul is talking about righteousness and holiness here in, 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 in the last part of the verse, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness, when he's talking about righteousness and holiness in the new self, he's talking about the righteousness of Christ and by grace, being clothed in that righteousness. Let's look, let's look at Ephesians 1, 21 through 24 again. Or 4, excuse me, 21 through 24. <coughs> Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. You see, the, the new self is who we become in Christ. The old self is who we were in Adam. The new self is who we become in Christ. The old self is who we were in Adam. So all the, all the so-called good deeds that we try to do, all the so-called being a good person, uh, everything we try to do to, to, to stack up in righteousness before a holy God, doesn't even come close. It doesn't even come close. You see, Paul calls his own righteousness poop, dung, a word I can't actually say up here. He, that's what he calls his own righteousness. But what it means being given Christ's perfection, being given Christ's righteousness, is that we do stack up to God because we are Christ's, because that's who we are. So as, as, as someone who, who before, before the, the, the transformation from, from, from Adam to Christ, the, their service in, in their, for myself, my marriage, when I got married, was, was all about me. I wanted, I wanted my marriage and my wife to serve me because I thought that was, that was what I was pursuing. I was satisfaction and happiness and joy for myself. But now in Christ, that satisfaction, or my marriage then, serves as an image of the gospel, and it, it exists so that I can serve my wife as Christ served the church and died for the church. It exists so that I can exhibit the glory of God through what he's done for me. So with the burden of perfection on us lifted because we are granted Christ's perfection, it makes our lives less burdensome. Because the burden of perfection is lifted, we don't have the weight of perfection on us. Where we would once have to keep the law, where the law would once have to be something that, that, that we would have to, if we wanted to be saved, we would, stick, we would have to stick to, to a T. We would have to obey God 100% cleanly throughout the entirety of our lives, where we would have to be perfect to stand in front of a holy and righteous God. Christ did that for us so that we don't have to. With the burden of perfection lifted, it frees us up from our, an obligation to righteousness. It frees us up from an obligation to holiness. 
to a desire to righteousness and a desire to holiness. You see, becoming the new self is, it changes who you are. It changes your identity. Throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians, for a good portion of it, we're going we're gonna to be talking about relationships in, in, in the church and, and the character of the Christian. And we're zooming way in here. And, and, and <clears throat> excuse me, in that, that's the trailer that the truck is pulling, and this here's the hitch. The hitch is, is Paul would not have us miss the hitch. The hitch is our why. Our why and why I want to serve and love and care for my wife and our marriage is because of what Christ did. It's because I am a new person. I am not Stephen first anymore. I'm Christ's first. I'm not an American first. I'm not, I'm not a male first. I'm Christ's first. Before anything, I'm Christ's. And as Christians, we live wholly different lives than we once lived. Paul paints such a drastic, drastic contrast here between these two sections, who you were and who you are. See, Christ radically transforms who you are. See, where we were once condemned before God, we are now justified before God. Where we were once enemies of God, we are now friends of God. Where we were once aliens and strangers before God, we are sons and daughters of God. Where I was once my own, I am now Christ's. A radical transformation happens when, when Christ becomes Lord of your life and when your identity shifts from you to Christ. And because of who we are is redeemed. See, who, who, who we are is redeemed. That's what Paul's saying here, is that this is who you were, this is who you are, that's been redeemed by Christ. Because who you are is redeemed, it frees us up to what we do being redeemed. So then as we see in, in, coming up in the book of Ephesians, how we operate in our relationships and how we operate in our lives and our workplaces, it changes because of who you are changes. It changes because your identity in Christ is there as opposed to identity in yourself or identity in anything else. First and foremost, we must always be in right standing before the creator God. The vertical relationship between man and God must be there before anything horizontal can be fixed or corrected. That's why all the way up to this point, Paul has laid out for the most part, the gospel and the church and what the, the impact the gospel has on, on the church and who the church is and who we are within the church. See, the vertical must be fixed before the horizontal can have, can, can have any impact, before the gospel can have any impact on relationships between man and man. We must always be in right standing with the creator before we can be in right standing with creation. Um, I want to, like I did last time, I think I like reading the whole thing again. I didn't put it up there, but I want to read the whole thing again because, I mean, I love, I, the more I studied this, the more and more I just fell in love with this passage just because of the, the drastic contrast painted between who we are and who, who we were and who we are. I just want to read it once more and then I'll pray and then um, we can worship together. So picking up in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we love you and we, we worship you. We cannot grant you the, 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 the glory you're due. We cannot grant you the glory you're due for what you've done for us. Such undeserving people, such undeserving sinners. For not only cleaning our slate, not only cleaning our impurities and removing our sin, but granting to us a perfection that isn't even our own. God, um, I pray that that we would recognize that who we are changes when you change our lives. That our, 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 our motivations, our pursuits of satisfaction and joy are, are transform, radically transformed by the work you do inside of us, God. Jesus, we, we, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.